Welcome to the Broken Vessels Podcast. Jeremiah 18.4 states, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. This is the Broken Vessels Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Simpkins. This is a podcast where we have discussions on theological themes for the broken to bring encouragement and hope in Christ. And I would like to welcome you back to the Broken Vessels podcast. We are going to have a discussion today about something that some people would consider a more political issue, but I don't see it that way. I see it as a foundationally theological issue. And as we've talked about In this podcast, we are here to talk about theological themes for the broken to bring encouragement and hope in Christ. Even though we talk about theology and we talk about the implications of theology on our lives, it can have far-reaching implications politically to a degree where it can affect us in our personal lives and in our church context. And so the subject that we're going to talk about today is a idea or ideology that is called Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. And again, we just did an episode on abortion recently. I know that's a hot topic. Christian nationalism, hot topic. Something most people are like, oh, I want to steer clear of that. I don't want to talk about that. But we, as the church, we need to address these issues in a gospel-centered, confessional, redemptive way in which we can have real conversations and deal with these issues in a way that we understand are there negatives to the dissemination of these ideas. And do these ideas bring brokenness to people's lives and how does it do that and what is the solution to that and so that's what we're going to talk about today thankfully i have a guest returning from the episode that we did on abortion and that is carrie baldwin who is an independent researcher and writer with a bachelor's in philosophy from arizona state university she's the co-author of Faith Seeking Freedom, a Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions, in addition to her content on MereLiberty.com. So check that website out. Really good stuff. She's also a regular contributor to the Libertarian Christian Institute, and she is a part of the Reformed Libertarians podcast with my other guest, Gregory Baus. By the way, Carrie also has a podcast called Dare to Think. Check that out as well on all of the major platforms. Gregory Baus is 
an independent scholar and a student of Christian philosophy. He is also sometimes a teacher of English as a second language. He's lived in seven countries outside of the U.S. He was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, and he is an Orthodox Presbyterian and lives in Pennsylvania, and uh, he waits tables to pay bills. But you know what? This guy is a smart dude. (laughs) Y'all need to listen to him. This guy has experience. He's seen the world, and he very much understands and knows philosophy. He's attended Covenant College Redeemer University. He's also audited classes at Westminster Seminary in California. He's attended Free University in Amsterdam, and he is presently enrolled in South African University. He is unmarried, uh, but he's an active uncle to four nephews and a niece, and he is, again, the co-host of the Reform Libertarians podcast. And they educate their listeners to embrace a view of politics, society, and culture from a Reformed perspective. And I just have to say, Gregory really understands Reformed theology and philosophy. I've very much gained a lot from their discussions and from his explanations of these things. And I think all of you, my listeners, would gain from the knowledge that this gentleman has grown to understand through his study and through the time that he spent in the world other than America. So it would be wise for you to just check them out and listen to them. So these are my guests, uh, Carrie, Gregory, welcome to the Broken Vessels podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. All right. Well, you know, a lot of people have a lot of definitions, I would assume, uh, about what Christian nationalism really means. I've heard very many nuanced definitions of this ideology. But I want to hear what you guys have to say from your research, from everything that you've seen in culture. Can you define and explain to our listeners what Christian nationalism is and what those who hold to these ideals espouse? Well, from what I have come across in my own reading, mostly, has been a uh, particular idea that may not be what other people will encounter on, you know, perhaps in their church or among Christian friends. So if someone is identifying with Christian nationalism or their position as Christian nationalism, it could be something other than what we're going to talk about. But since we can't talk about everything, I'll try to narrow it down to uh, what I think is what is distinguishable from other things. So sure. it's associated with a lot of other things, try to get to the heart of the Christian national issue. One of the things that it's not, I think, is simply Christians being patriotic. So if someone says I'm a Christian nationalist and then what they talk about is really just love of country, that is love of the land and the people, their neighbors, or even way of life or something like that, that's... I wouldn't say that was Christian nationalism. So some Christians in America also, I would say, do, well, they are, they would say that they're patriotic towards America, but that's quite a massive undertaking. 
<laughs> in terms of uh, 3.5 million square miles of land and 330 million people that they don't know anything about, except for a small, very small percentage of that. No, yeah. no one could know all of America to love it in that way. That's just to say, if someone's patriotic and that's there's nothing wrong with being patriotic to love your land and neighbors, probably the real object of that love is something much smaller than America itself. So just to distinguish that from Christian nationalism. I think it's important to say that Christian nationalism is not the idea that Christianity has relevance to politics or civil governance. We certainly talk about the relevance of our faith for views of politics in our podcast, Reformed Libertarians. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com. Believing that Christian morality and religious views should or necessarily do inform your political views is something else than Christian nationalism. To view sexual perversion as immoral and to reject the legitimacy of same-sex marriage, to reject government laws that require you to use someone else's preferred gender pronouns or to otherwise support immoral behavior, to view abortion as immoral, and to reject government laws permitting abortion. None of those things are Christian nationalism. That's a, Although, that, that's a very important distinction because a lot of people think that if you have an opinion or a biblical understanding of morality that somehow you're trying to espouse Christian nationalism. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Yes, or that somehow your morality influences your view of law or politics. And the typical mainstream media has called and will probably continue to call Christians Christian nationalists just as a way to vilify them and to vilify Christianity. Right. Part of the difficulty in defining Christian nationalism is that not everyone who wants to identify their position as nationalist is using the word nation in the same way. Importantly, the Bible, in our English translations of the Bible, contains the word nation. What's being referred to in the Bible that gets translated as nation that's referring to really what we think of as an ethnic group or, even more simply, an extended family and language-related people. So if a bunch of people are related and they speak the same language, that's, in the Bible's use of the term, a, a nation. It's basically synonymous with what we think of as tribes or clans or related groups of tribes and clans that have the same language. That's that's it. That's the Bible's understanding. Right. It's not a political concept. Although some of those tribes and clans in the Bible had political organization, that's not a necessary part of it. Mm-hmm. That's really important. So, for example, in the biblical sense, France is not a nation. Right. right? So not an old, group. Yeah, there was an old tribe called the Franks, mm-hmm. uh, and they were Germanic. And that's where the name France comes from. There were also the Gauls, G-A-U-L-S. They were Celtic. And then there were Goths and Normans and several other groups you've probably never heard of. (laughs) They were all different ethnicities that intermixed and formed different new regional ethnicities in France. And pretty much the whole world is like that, right? Right. Different extended families with different languages going to different places, intermixing 
things like that, settling, forming new groups. France is not a nation in the biblical sense. The way we use nation, though, the word nation outside the Bible, what it really refers to is a political unit. That is what we might call a nation state, right? Okay. So this is a word political scientists use. You can also just use the word state. So that doesn't mean like California or Texas. It means uh, any national or not, not to say national, any political jurisdiction, right? Okay. That would be a state. And so some political unit where there's a territorial boundary. So you cross this line, that's Canada. On this side of the line, that's the United States. These are nation states. And that's how we most often use the word nation. It's a political unit under a general monopoly government. Okay. And so North America wouldn't qualify. Why? Because there's no one single general government over North America, the continent. Mm -hmm. Some nationalists think that nation states should consist or consist of only or mostly of one ethnicity, and that's called ethno-nationalism. Now, some people think Christian nationalism is an ethno-nationalist idea, and for some people it is. But, of course, biblical Christianity rejects that. It doesn't hold that it's necessary for a flourishing society or for good civil governance to have a dominant ethnicity. That's completely irrelevant for us. It's not inherently bad if there is one. A lot of island nations like Japan are pretty homogenous mm-hmm. in terms of their ethnicity just because they're out in the middle of nowhere. Ethnicity is really irrelevant, should be irrelevant to politics. The idea that ethnicity is important to politics is what we would call a form of racialist identity politics, and that's something Christians should reject along with every other form of identity politics. Right. Very importantly, of course, the church is multi-ethnic, people of all tribes, tongues, and languages, and uh, even if a particular congregation are made up of people who are all basically related or from the same extended family or ethnicity or linguistic group, if they're a true church, they embrace all other true churches and Christians of whatever ethnicity as part of the same household of God and brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, most Christian nationalists today, I would say, or people that believe that uh, we should be a quote-unquote Christian nation— would probably tell you, well, no, we don't believe that there's any racial component to this at all. And so how... I think it's pretty distinguishable, yeah. Right. So how would you define kind of where they're coming from? Right. So nationalism of whatever kind, I think, is really the view that a given political unit or nation state should be independent and self-determining or self-governing and free from outside control. And these days, what people particularly have in mind is so-called political globalism or international or transnational control. Okay. So a nation state or a given political unit or jurisdiction can then be internally governed in any number of different ways— The way they're internally governed, then, if they're independent, they can be internally governed either more or less authoritarianly. They can have uh, a dictatorship, but 
they're not taking orders from outside their jurisdiction. So it might be an independent political unit or nation state could be, this is a different sense of nationalist, could be nationalist in the sense of just having a single unitary top-down central government that creates all the laws. France tends to be that way. Or it could be what you might call more federalist, non-unitary, or it's more decentralized local governments that each create different sets of laws. Or it could be anything in between those two positions. The United States, on paper, is supposed to be more like the decentralized version. And the sense of nationalism really at issue simply means anti-globalist, or speaking of political globalism, anti-international control, anti-transnational government. So something like the EU, they would be against that. Okay. A given political unit or nation state, however that's defined, however big or small it is, has the right to be self-governing. For example, when the UK, when the United Kingdom or Britain or however you want to put it, had what was called Brexit, Britain exit. So they left the European Union. They, they never had the monetary system, but they were the United Kingdom as a government was being dictated to by a council that was supposedly elected, but still it's a bureaucracy that's not just British citizens. It includes whatever, whoever else was a member of the European Union. They were told they could and couldn't do X, Y, and Z. They had to have the thus and such laws and so on. And they said, nope, we were tired of this. We're out of it. So they left the European Union. And of course, some Brits didn't like that. But in any case, the government decided not to be controlled anymore by people outside of the UK. Right. <laughs> Quebec nationalists, for example, are a group of people in Quebec, that's a province in Canada, mm-hmm. that want to be fully a fully sovereign nation state themselves and govern themselves on their own without any government relation to other parts of Canada or to the Canadian national government. Texas nationalists, even if they don't use that word, are those that want Texas to secede and be independent and self-governing totally apart from the United States federal government. And all these positions, actually, this might surprise people, this sense of nationalism as political unit wanting to be independent, it's perfectly okay for Christians to support smaller political units having independency and opposing control by governments that claim to rule over them within a supposed larger territory. If you wanted political independence for your district or your county or your local region, there's nothing immoral or unbiblical or unchristian about that. And we certainly talk about those ideas as well in the Reformed Libertarians podcast. So a nation state might be governed internally. How it's governed internally is not really the issue of nationalism. Nationalism is just the idea that a region has independence. It's not controlled from people outside that region. Now, there's one more thing that is sometimes confused with nationalism, and that's a government's relationship to the economy, and that might be called economic nationalism, uh, how the economy is more or less controlled or regulated in a more or less authoritarian way. So Donald Trump, just like Barack Obama and many others, they're all economic nationalists in the sense 
of being against actual open free trade. They oppose a fully free market. They think they're protecting businesses within the U.S. by imposing high tariffs. That means a cost on people who want to import goods. That's really just a tax on Americans who would mm-hmm. like to buy goods at a lower price. Right. Uh, but that, that tariff or tax on imports, that's economic nationalism. They think there has to be some kind of balance between imports and exports and a whole number of other completely fallacious economic ideas that actually hurt regular Americans. Don't help them at all. Buy American is not going to help Americans, actually. That's an economic myth. And that's a form of economic nationalism. But that doesn't really have anything to do with the essential idea of nationalism as an idea of anti-globalist or political independence that nationalism is really about. Okay. If I might jump in, sure. it may, may be helpful for your listeners to sort of think about it in this way. There's a distinction between having an affection for the people or the culture or the language or even the history that you've grown up in. Um, there's a distinction between that and then having an affection for the state, its policies, its economics, those sorts of things, its political parties. And when we're talking about those two distinctions, you know, when you talk about a Christian America, there are some people who think of America as a Christian nation in terms of the state and its policies and its political parties. And then America is a Christian nation in terms of its people, its culture, its language, its history. And I think what we're trying to say is that there's nothing wrong with the people, culture, language, history per se. Certainly history has borne out that people do terrible things to one another. And the racialized aspect that sometimes creeps into this topic would be not that you have an affection for your people, culture, language, and history, but that you find that it's superior to all others, right? That would be the erroneous view. So, but both patriotism and nationalism have been used to garner allegiance to the state. And I think that's really where you get into the problems because that allegiance to the state lends itself to this monopolizing of of power that, that you see, you know, the aversion to Trump, for example, has more power that he accumulates in in various sorts of ways, various sorts of policies and that sort of thing, which undermines freedom. But that sort of behavior can take place, whether it's from Trump or Biden, Democrat, Republican, like that's that's not really a left right issue. Nationalism isn't necessarily associated with a particular agenda of one sort of another. So I, I hope that's also helpful. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, a lot of people think Christian nationalism, they they feel like it's a biblical idea. Like, okay, well, America is like Israel of the Old Testament. So I guess the question that some of our listeners may be asking themselves is, okay, well, you, you look at the example of nations in the Old Testament and you look at our nation now. Is this a biblical idea or is this something else? Is this something that we just kind of came up with on our own? Well, I think you're right that Christian nationalists, a lot of them, depending on exactly what they mean, have an idea that they're getting this from the Bible, particularly looking at the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, that is the time from when God raised up Moses to deliver the people out of Egypt at Mount Sinai 
and receiving the law and entering into a distinct kind of covenant with God regarding the land of Israel. Okay, so then with Joshua, and they go into the land, then with the judges and David and so on until Christ. So that period of the old covenant, old Mosaic covenant, where they're in the land of Israel, there's borders on there. That's specifically the, you know, what they was being referred to as the promised land. Some people do look at that and think that that means something for Christians in the new covenant in terms of this is how whatever nation or whatever state Christians are in should be arranged in this similar way. Right. That Christians should have a governmental structure of the country that should have a state in some way, like ancient is old covenant Israel that is somehow in covenant with God. So what do you think is the error there? What are people missing? I think there's two things that, that come to mind. I could explain it in two different ways. One way is that what the New Testament shows us is that those that wrote the New Testament, I mean, the human authors, the way they said it, of course, it is God speaking. So what the Holy Spirit communicates to us in the New Testament is that the way the old covenant political arrangement applies to Christians today has nothing to do with the politics of their country. Right. It has to do with the church. Right. So Christians need to switch their thinking about that if they're thinking about it in terms of a political idea. So if they're thinking Old Covenant Israel applies to America or the United States because Christians are here or applies to Christians somehow in America or the United States, that's the wrong way to think. The Old Covenant Israel as a nation or as a political unit applies to those who belong to Jesus, <laughs> that is, the church. So that think of it in those terms. It doesn't have anything to do with political stuff. It has to do with the church. And the other thing that's wrong with it is that Christian nationalism, in pretty much whatever version of it that you'll come across, in some way wants the civil government, whatever kind of setup of the state or civil government that there is, wants the civil government to give a certain church or certain Christian beliefs or practices, exclusive legal protections or privileges. And that means that by government law, churches or beliefs or practices of other Christians or of other religions would be penalized or outlawed. Right. So, for example, if, and then this has, of course, been the case, if there's a quote-unquote established church. So when the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law regarding an establishment of religion, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about a government-officially recognized church. So the Church of the United States that has special government privileges from the United States government. The Constitution says the government cannot do that. Now, of course, historically, when the guys who wrote the Constitution put that in there, every single, I think except for one or two, colony that was then a state within the United States had themselves a government officially recognized church. 
Right. Right. So Virginia was Church of England or Anglican or as the Americans began to call it, Episcopal or Episcopalian. A lot of the New England states had Congregationalist churches. I don't think there are any that were Baptist. Rhode Island was probably the first one that didn't want to have an established religion. And then Virginia very quickly tried to get rid of theirs in terms of an established church. But anyway, so this is the idea of establishmentarianism. It's a very long word. Mm -hmm. And it's that idea that of having a government officially recognize a church as the government's church that then it's not just that the government is saying in their constitution or something, hey, Christianity is true and we support Christianity and our laws are based on the Bible or something. It's outlawing other beliefs, practices, and and churches. In other words, in some way criminally penalizing at least the public expression of other religions. So, for example... If the official church was Baptist church, then Methodists couldn't have a public church building. They'd yeah. have to meet in secret, basically. Well, I'm, I'm et cetera. more Presbyterian, so I'd be in trouble, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think this this comes from two primary mistakes, which are easy to do, especially since evangelicalism is so prominent. The first mistake is reading the Old Testament as something to be applied in the New Covenant era. It's very easy to think to yourself, oh, there's a problem with the way the government operates. It also doesn't like Christianity. What does the Bible say about government? Oh, look, there's this, you know, entire blueprint in the book of Deuteronomy or the Old Testament that that told the Israelites how to run government. Maybe we should do that. And that's a mistaken view. You need, you know, we have to understand how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. Right. So that's mistake number one. The second mistake that that Gregory mentioned was this idea that, oh, well, there were, you know, states early on in America that did have an established church and simply appealing to the history of that, the matter, the, the fact of the matter is not a sufficient reason for, well, this is this is how it should be done. Well, they did it before. We should do it again. So there's there's a couple of mistakes that people make when they think that they should be trying to establish Christianity. And really, even that motivation that the government should establish Christianity comes from ultimately the fundamental fear that you might have to live in a pagan culture. And for at least for most of us, we grew up in a culture that is at least on the surface Christian, and so we didn't have to deal with a whole lot of non-Christian things that now we're having to deal with. Right. And so there are people who don't want to have to deal with that, and so they want to just say, okay, we're going to establish Christianity as the, the major religion in the country, and you know, so that they can go back to that. And they appeal to these, these things like history or, or a misreading or misuse of the Old Testament. That's just error. Yeah. Uh, thinking of, thinking while you guys are talking about all this there there's so much we could talk about and we don't really have time to get into it but i think about things i heard when i was younger like america was brought up as a christian nation okay to a degree yes there were christians that were involved in bringing up the nation did our constitution involve scripture in its founding Yes, to a degree, that's correct. 
but most of the founders were deists. They were not theists, <laughs> a predominant amount of them. We have this idea, I think, in America, especially like where I came from in fundamentalism. Well, bless God, America was founded as a Christian nation. We need to keep it as a Christian nation. And if we don't keep it as a Christian nation, then the church has failed and we have to fix it. And if we don't fix it, then it's the church's fault. So how do you address that? How do you address like what these Christian nationalist types say? How do you counter that? Because, and I almost feel like it's, the same thing as like what I said, like I came from fundamentalism, like you're not doing enough, you're not being enough, you're not checking off the boxes, therefore you better check your salvation. So it's almost like if you don't check the box of being a Christian nationalist, then you're not even safe yeah. because you you just think we should just let the country go to hell in a handbasket. So how would you address that? Well, to the degree that America was ever a Christian nation. That is entirely based on the voluntary participation by individuals in Christianity. It's not because the government made it that way. There's right. there's an erroneous view that the government is sort of in charge of directing and dictating what the culture is going to be like. And there's certainly an I, I would venture to say in the early stages of our country, that was the opposite. That was their whole point, right? Well, I mean, fundamentally, there there is certainly an, an influence between culture and government. But what causes the other, I think, is in dispute. And the government is not actually in a place to create culture. We we create culture. Individuals create culture. So if you want the Christian nation, in other words, you want a majority of people living around you to hold Christian beliefs, that comes from the voluntary participation of it, That and that only comes through actual regeneration of people, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, right. and a consequence of the spread of the gospel. So still not government doing those things. Right. Gregory can pop in and say what, what he wants to say, but I'll, I'll leave it with this. It is backwards to say that we want a Christian nation, therefore we should coerce outward conformity through it or to it through the use of force from, from the sword, from civil justice. You're not creating a Christian nation anyways by doing it. That's just... No. A you're, superficial you're, you're, facade. Yeah, you're trying to make something happen from your own efforts. It's not yeah. looking and, to Christ and to the gospel to make the change. And and if nothing else, creates a stumbling block to actual conversion. Right. I, th I think Carrie's absolutely right that one of the great motivators of Christian nationalism, that is, you know, wh why are people talking about this at all? Why, why, how did this idea ever come up? Well, because Christianity as a force for good in our society has diminished, and that's diminished by fewer and fewer people being actual Christians. And that means that people begin to live more consistently with their anti-Christianity, mm -hmm. with their beliefs in other things. That means their outward manifestations of heinous, sinful behavior becomes more and more 
obvious and out in the open can be frightening to Christians when they say, oh man, there's trans reading hour or whatever in the public libraries. They're sexualizing children and this, you know, and it is in fact quite revolting and yeah. horrendous. Right? For sure. I mean, and abortion, all they have to start doing is setting up actual images of Moloch or something and sacrificing children in, in the public square to, to get any more obvious about it. But this is, this is where Christian nationalism is coming from. It's saying, look, if we want to have a decent moral society, we've got to have government get on this and not permit these things anymore. Right. So the, the real question is... What is it that God wants governments to permit and not permit? And then outside of that, what has to be left up to persuasion and you would say social or moral influence? Yeah. Right. So the the danger to Christians, what's dangerous to Christianity and to Christians is not people, is not, not other people failing to be Christians. Mm -hmm. right. right. The fact that other people are not Christians is not what's dangerous to Christians. What's dangerous to Christians is the use of governmental coercive power. That's what's dangerous to Christians yeah. and dangerous to every anybody who isn't in power. Well, and I think if so, we look at history, we can see what the Roman Catholic Church what that did for us. It gave us yeah. the dark ages, right? That's what we saw happen when the church and the state almost became synonymous. And there was a lot of back and forth throughout those hundreds of years or whatever. But the Pope always had much influence on what went on governmentally. And I think like what you guys have espoused, individualism, you know, individual responsibility, all of those things, that doesn't take away from the fact that we in our faith can influence others for the glory of God and to bring glory to God in the way that we love our neighbor and espouse Christian principles. The problem with Christian nationalism that I kind of see is I feel like it's this pendulum swing. They see what's going on in culture. And what tends to happen is it's almost like this fundamentalist, legalistic mindset where they see, okay, all this stuff is happening. We got to do something. Somehow, like, they have it in their power to do it. And yeah. so that's what I feel is it's like a knee-jerk reaction to a degree. It is reactionary. I mean, one example of a government being nationalist and and really going off the rails was Nazi Germany, which was entirely reactionary. Um, it was reactionary to, you know, preceding policies and economic conditions. Right. And, you know, I would say as far as the theme for your, your podcast and brokenness, right, and why we need to be paying attention to these things is because it's very easy for us to say, to sort of look at politics as something that doesn't touch us, doesn't affect us in some sort of way. Right. Or if it affects us, it's only divisive and causes us to argue with one another and things of that nature. But really, the reason why politics is so divisive at this point 
is because government has intervened in absolutely every aspect of our life. And there's not a single aspect of life that that is not politicized as a consequence. Yeah. And so nationalism is reactionary against that. And there's not only the politics at the at the federal level that is driving a wedge between Democrats and Republicans, but you also have the politics at the global level and, yeah. and the, the monopolization of power there. And, you know, it's all it is very much reactionary to conditions. And if we can sort of slow down and stop and start to understand sort of these political philosophies, what they're motivated by, and also the economics of it, which is probably the economics of it is really where you get into what you might call the the practical stuff. That's right. You know, that's that's really the stuff that that hits home. There's a reason why eggs cost eight dollars a, oh a dozen right now. Yeah. And it's not because of greed. Um, these things are explainable, but we have to also be able to talk about them if we're going to try to solve those problems. Yeah. And, you know, for my listeners, you guys need to understand, I'm not trying to be political here. Okay. And truthfully, I don't believe (laughs) Carrie or Gregory are trying to be quote unquote political. They're trying to help us as Christians understand what we're seeing in our world from a reform perspective. They're the reformed libertarians. These guys are libertarian. Okay. I'm going to be honest with you. I lean libertarian. You know, I believe in personal responsibility. I believe in not getting in everybody's business about everything. And there's a whole lot more that has to do with that philosophy and ideology. Go to the libertarian, uh, the Reform Libertarians podcast. Listen to what they have to say. I'm not telling you you're, you're going to agree with everything they say. You don't have to, but you can at least listen to what they have to say and. Think about it from a covenantal, confessional reform perspective and just hear what they got to say, because it has major implications in the way that we look at the world that we're living in. Something I do want to make a point of, you all have lived in the same world that I've lived in in the last three years. Most of you weren't paying attention three years ago, and then three years ago happened and COVID hit, and then we saw all the aftermath of that, and we're still seeing it. We're seeing what we're seeing in society, uh, the riots that happened in 2020, the way churches behaved. All of these things are significant to our lives in real time. And a lot of what happened three years ago to today has far-reaching implications when it comes to brokenness in our lives. My wife is an RN. She works at a children's hospital. This is how far-reaching these implications are, and it breaks my heart every time I think about it. She worked in a certain department. She's a per diem nurse, so she works in all departments. She worked at a, a certain department at the hospital about two months ago. Technically, she's only supposed to have four patients at a time, okay? And these are all kids, by the way. I'm trying to put this in perspective for you. She should only have four patients. She ended up having seven patients in one day that she had to care for at the same time. I want to put this in perspective for you. All seven patients, all children under the age of 18 were suicidal and had to have somebody watching them 24-7 because they were all suicidal. Most of them teenagers, but there were a couple of them that were 9, 10 years old. Think about that. Think about that hard 
and long. The things that we've been going through have caused brokenness in our lives in a real world way. Okay, you're thinking to yourself now, well, we got to do something about that. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, we got to make a law. And I'm telling you right now, (laughs) Carrie and Gregory are like, oh no, I don't want to hear that word. That is not the answer. Making more laws is not the answer. The church's response has not been the greatest through the three years that we've all lived through. It's just, it's not been great. There's been some churches that have done well. There's been others that haven't. Christian nationalism, it was a thing three, four, five years ago, even further back. But it's gained steam in the last three years in a huge way, and I've seen it in American evangelicalism. Okay, I've seen it firsthand from friends that I know that have been influenced by it and that have suffered the effects of it. This is not a good ideology, and it's not a good response for the church. Carrie and Gregory are trying to help us to parse this out and to think about it logically, philosophically, and biblically. Because if we don't, it's going to exponentially get worse, and we're not going to deal with it in the way that Christ has called us to deal with the things that we see in our lives and in our culture, and it's going to hurt people. This is the Broken Vessels podcast. We want to try to help those that are broken. I've said over and over again, it's theological themes for the broken to bring hope and encouragement in Christ. And you're probably asking yourself, well, man, Josh, why you get... Why are you talking about this? This is this sounds like a political podcast. I'm talking to you about this, and I'm bringing these guests on to talk about this because there are theological themes that are underlying this ideology that are damaging, and that is what we're trying to deal with. And I want you to be aware. I don't want you to think about it. I want you to chew on it, and I want you to deal with it. And if you start seeing this stuff, in the body of believers that you're in, you got to be aware. You got to be ready for it. Got to deal with it because it's it's gaining steam. It's a problem, and it not only brings brokenness in a corporate sense for our country, but it literally can bring brokenness to you as an individual. I want to read a quote for you guys. I'm not going to say the name of this guy. It was a tweet I saw today. I'm going to read this quote. This is a guy that I know is most definitely a Christian nationalist, somebody who claims to be a quote-unquote reformed believer, but is a Christian nationalist, very well-known Christian nationalist, okay? I want to share this quote with you, and then I'm going to ask you our next question. He says, quote, did you read your Bible today? If we're going to rebuild the West, it will be by millions of ordinary people reading their Bibles and trusting and obeying the king, unquote. Most people would hear a quote like that and they'd be like, well, yeah, right on. We should all agree with that. Okay, to a degree. Yeah, I agree with that. But there's a whole lot underlying that. And I want to, I want y'all to address the quote I just shared. And then I want you to answer this question. What do you believe are the problems with the ideals of Christian nationalism and how can holding these views bring brokenness to people's lives? Well, I think that the having as one's primary concern 
the rebuilding of the West would be replacing the kingdom of God as our first as of ha- having first importance right. with something with something else. So it's almost as if America is the new kingdom of God, right? That right. or the Western civilization is the kingdom of God. That right. that's the vibe I get from that. So quote. whatever whatever it is, let's say it's something you know anything anything other than the kingdom of God. And of course, perhaps even some would want to confuse other Christians by trying to define the kingdom of God in a way that would then allow them to say, well, that's what I mean when I say building Western civilization or America or your town or whatever it is. To say, yeah, I'm talking about the kingdom of God. So (laughs) when the golden calf somehow miraculously all by itself jumped out of the fire uh, (laughs) with the people of Israel, as Aaron put it, he had said this. He said to the people of Israel, this is Yahweh. Let us give thanks to the Lord. I find it interesting, too. Just I want to make a point. It's interesting that when Aaron said this is Yahweh. He was attributing God to the idol. Exactly. I I think that's significant. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's saying, so through this other thing, we're supposedly going to be focusing on God and God's kingdom. So when the Lord says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, then all these other things will be added unto you. It doesn't mean you seek first the kingdom of God by incorporating any of those other things into the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus is saying. So let me encourage Christians that to pursue seeking first the kingdom of God, which is to grow in the grace of God through Jesus Christ mm-hmm. by faith in him to mature as Christians to have as your chief end the glory of God and enjoyment of him forever one important part of that has to be giving attention to what the Bible does say about the restricted the limited duty that God has given to civil government mm-hmm. So in the scripture, God directs us to an understanding of what God himself has said about his institution of civil government and giving a very specific and restricted, a limited task for civil government to pursue the kingdom of God, to grow in the grace of God is to grow in an understanding of the teaching of his word, part of which will, if we pay attention to what it's saying will direct us to how God is saying what civil government should do and what it shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And I think for many Christians, they receive the teaching from the Bible about morality in a very general way and then say what's right and wrong. If this is what God has told us to do and not to do, they somewhat unthinkingly just say that's what should be the rules in the sense of what civil government should enforce. Right. And that's a very, that's, that's a mistake. That's a mistake in thinking. So in other words, if God wants us to do this and to not do that, 
it doesn't follow that that's what God has assigned the government to enforce. Right. Right. Other things are not like that. And we have to be able to look to the Bible to figure out which of those things are the things the government should enforce and which it God says it has no business dealing with. Right. And perhaps might be dealt with through other means. Right. And I want to definitely point you guys to the Reformed Libertarians podcast because they talk about this in length. We don't have the time to talk about that in this podcast. Please go listen to their podcast because they deal with this kind of thing at length. Listen to what they have to say. They really parse a lot of this stuff out and are continuing to. You guys just started the podcast, what, like back six? Back in November. Yeah, so back in November. So I think you guys are, what, like eight, nine, ten episodes, something like that. So go listen to their podcast. I'm not telling you you have to agree with them, okay, on everything. But listen to what they're saying from a biblical reform perspective. Because for me, it's been very encouraging. It's been really good in the way that they've explained. Uh, I definitely would uh, ask you to listen to their interpretation of Romans 13. I remember hearing that passage preached when I was younger. And it's hard to understand, okay, how do we deal with government, the governing authorities? How are we supposed to submit? These guys do a really good job, really not only Gregory and exegeting what that's all about, but just the real world implications of that. So listen to what they have to say on that, because it's it's something we in, especially in the American context, in the American church, we got to start rethinking some of these things. Carrie, I want to ask you specifically, just from your point of view, give us some specific examples of where you've seen that the ideology of Christian nationalism has caused damage individually to not only the community at large, but also individuals within the church. Some real-world examples of where you've seen that this ideology has caused damage and brokenness so that people that may be experiencing it can be like, oh, yeah, that's I I see that right now with where I'm at. Let me put it this way. You know, in in my interview with you on abortion, you wanted to make the connection to brokenness. And what I said was abortion does bring brokenness, but more importantly, brokenness brings abortions. And our brokenness, our sinful, fallen humanity also gives us an authoritarian impulse. And this is the idea that we know better than everyone else. And so everyone else must follow our rules or we don't know enough, but there's this small group of people over here who they seem to know enough. We should give them all the power as well. That in and of itself is part and parcel of the problem. And authoritarianism manifests in a number of different ways. It manifests in nationalism, but it also manifests in democracy, which is simply mob rule. As far as examples go, I mean, we can talk about distant past with the, you know, mid 1600s and the Renaissance. There's actually a, you've already mentioned the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church and the influence it had. There's this really good series on Netflix that I've been recommending called Medici. And it's about the Medici family. They were a banking family, which started out with great intentions, but through their monopolization of power over the monetary system, they became corrupt. And it wasn't because they intended 
intended to be that way. It didn't start out with greed. So we can look to more distant history for examples, but we can also look at our at our own history. I would say that the nationalist ideal was an undercurrent um, after 9-11. We just called it patriotism then. And evangelicalism, American evangelicalism was in one sense exploited by key political figures. They preached this idea, not evangelicals, they picked up on this, but political figures teach this idea that they, people from the Middle East, they hate us for our freedom, so we must go and fight them over there so that they don't fight us on our own soil. Mm-hmm. Well, on a very individual level, how does that affect you? Well, number one, you become afraid of another group of people, right? right? That incites fear. And when you become afraid, that is when you are more likely to give up your freedoms for security. And that's exactly what we do. You can see this pattern throughout history. Every single time a government, and it doesn't matter which government it is, but every single time a government seizes power, it's because the people have become afraid of something and they want a solution to a problem very quickly and they don't know how to solve it. And so they turn to government and government says, yeah, we'll fix that problem for you. Just give us some of your freedom. And we hand it over. So in a very real sense, you know, you've got this overarching ideology that is maybe feels distant, especially to your listeners, if they've never explored political philosophy, feels very distant. They have no idea what it's, you know, what it's about, or which side to believe, or they're sick and tired of left versus right, and they just want to disengage, or they feel politically homeless. The fact of the matter is, is that this stuff really affects us. And, you know, whether it's an authoritarian impulse, which then causes you to become reactionary to other things, which you can see the authoritarian impulse when it comes to spiritual abuse mm-hmm. or emotional or psychological or even physical abuse within mm-hmm. interpersonal relationships. It's all the same pattern. Yep. So those things reverberate throughout society. They reverberate in our own individual lives. And if we aren't aware of those patterns, where they come from, what they're motivated by, or the proper response to them, then we just get pulled along with the tide. And that's a very precarious place to be. We've talked a little bit about, you know, how some Christian nationalists or some some Christians, especially in the Reformed world, are grabbing a hold of this concept of Christian nationalism, and they happen to be associated with guys like Doug Wilson or the patriarchalists. Again, there's the undercurrent of the authoritarian impulse there. Patriarchalism has an authoritarian impulse. And so once you embrace the idea that the only way to solve problems is through authoritarianism, that becomes the pattern that that you repeat and repeat and repeat on various levels of of relationships and and spheres of society. I do want to say, because I know that people get turned off to politics and there's, I wrote an article uh, for LCI called something like- By the way- for my listeners, that's the Libertarian Christian Institute. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, Libertarian Christian Institute. Sure. But I wrote a, an article about why you hate politics. And I encourage your readers to, or your listeners to go read that that article. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, Ugh, libertarianism, that's just that's just another, you know, that's just another political game. One of the first objections that we hear from people is that libertarianism only works if we have a basic understanding that all people are good and will behave themselves. And that's the exact opposite. We recognize 
the brokenness of humanity. We are not under any sort of illusions about the impact of sin and the fallen world. And that's one of the reasons why, and I would say Gregory and I are both, <laughs> we're both broken in our own ways. We've, mm-hmm. we've both been through the ringer. And one of the reasons that we have this podcast, one of the reasons why we talk about this stuff is because we know that God has created a way to serve one another, to solve societal problems, to govern ourselves, to deal with matters of justice, to deal with poverty, to deal with all of these things that hurt, you know, that are hurting. God's created a way to do that. And that's what we're talking about. It has very little to do with, well, we just need to elect the right people. Right. That's not what we're here for. We're here to talk about how God created the world such that we can serve each other and that we can actually explain why some of these bad things are happening. And I mean, good news, there's an explanation for it, which Mm -hmm. means that there's a solution to the problem. And we will never reach perfection in this age. We will never have the kingdom on earth in this age. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. But we also don't need to make it unnecessarily painful either. Yeah, that's good. Very much so. Because I I find it interesting as you were sharing what you just shared. (laughs) Many people, like they do think like, oh man, these guys are talking about politics and they're talking about stuff that doesn't affect me. But yet in the way that you have explained how these kind of things affect politics in real life, I was thinking about the way that authoritarianism affects people on a real world level in the church and in relationships. And you kind of shared that a little bit. I know a lot of my listeners understand that because they've experienced it. They've seen it like in spiritual abuse situations in churches. I've gotten messages from people. I've had so many people that have thanked me for talking about candidly about spiritual abuse because it's real. A lot of the reason I chose to discuss this topic is because in evangelical churches that espouse this ideal of Christian nationalism, part and parcel with it comes that authoritarianism and spiritual abuse. That's just a reality. That's the reason why I think it's an important topic to discuss and talk about and deal with and why this ideology is not helpful. It's not helpful to the body. It's not helpful to our country. And we got to think about better ways of dealing with what we're seeing in our world than that. You guys have done a great job of really helping us to parse this out. Now, Carrie, you were just talking about like we got to talk about real solutions. Well, to conclude our discussion, and I want both you and Gregory to share your opinions on this, and biblically and philosophically, Christian nationalism, we've established that's not the answer. It's not the answer to the problems that we see in our society or our culture. So if that's not the answer, then biblically, what do you think is the right path that we as believers should be moving towards? And at the core of that should be the gospel and confessional theology, how does that fit into that answer? Gregory, if you want to share first, and then we'll let Carrie close us out. The gospel and 
a reformed understanding of the gospel and what the rest of scripture teaches that's embraced by reformed churches one way that that comes into it into the these issues is in terms of the ending of the old mosaic covenant with Christ's fulfilling fulfilling that covenant and making that covenant obsolete what that means and his instituting a new covenant so we believe that the gospel was proclaimed beforehand, before the coming of Christ, particularly in the covenant that God made with Abraham. Of course, we see it in the garden when he promised that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that though his heel would be bruised, he would crush the serpent's head. That's a promise of deliverance from sin. And in the fulfilling of the old Mosaic covenant, Christ also fulfills the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And that is the gospel. Yeah, He, he brought the gospel, which the gospel being what it is, that he himself has done to accomplish salvation for his people. And part of what that means is that the symbol that Old Covenant Israel represented, which is the body of Christ, that symbol is no longer necessary because the reality of Christ's people united to him in his accomplished work of redemption he already came and lived a perfect life on our behalf and already took the penalty of sin in his death and was resurrected and is ascended to the right hand of the father in heaven and he will bring the final judgment in the new heavens and the new earth that all having been done is the reality that now we live in in the church that this is accomplished by Christ. We don't need the symbol anymore, which was a political expression tied to a piece of territory. That doesn't mean we don't have civil government anymore. It's just that civil government then is not itself the body of Christ. Right. It then just becomes how we can order our lives together uh, with non-Christians according to the principles of civil justice. So that's what we would like to help our fellow believers understand more clearly. It does involve, you know, some more technical ideas, and we try to make those as accessible as possible. There's an article that I wrote dealing with ideas explained by a theologian named Charles Hodge, a Presbyterian theologian who was at Princeton in the 1800s. And I'll, I'll send that to you. Um, it's on the idea of civil establishment of religion and how he's showing us how the Bible contradicts the idea of the establishment of a church or religion by civil government. Hmm. I try to talk about it some more in terms of ethics, distinguishing the idea of generally what's right and wrong, what God wants us to do, and then what he wants government to enforce, those not being the same things, right. it, only partially overlapping. But how, how, how can we decide what those things are? How can we know what God says government should enforce sure. and shouldn't? Uh, so that's in that article. I hope that's helpful. The article's helpful. And I think appreciating what it means 
for Jesus to have come in history and have accomplished our salvation so that the new covenant church has that reality now. I think that has a lot to do with it. And hopefully we can help Christians come to understand that better and what that means for our interaction with things that are inevitably political in terms of civil government, how it affects our daily lives, how it affects what Christians should be, how they should be talking about it in church or or not. Sure. Okay, Carrie, go ahead. Yeah, that was good. I would add, <laughs> maybe it's more practical. You know, you have at base, you have the gospel. The gospel changes hearts. Christ through the Holy Spirit repents us so that our feet may follow. He turns our hearts so that we can then turn our actions. And I really love, I think it was the marrow of the marrow men who said uh, something along the lines of, you know, what Christ does is he turns, do this and live and to live and do this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in a very practical way, when we talk about solutions, we're not talking about oh, we just need to change the government. Like that's what we've been doing for decades and this is where we're at. I really firmly believe, one, in Matthew 6.33, that first you seek Christ and his kingdom and then everything else will be added to you. But I'm also a firm believer in the doctrine of vocation. And our vocation is the way in which we serve Christ and serve the church and serve our neighbor. Our vocation can be something that we get paid for, that we're employed for, or it's just the work that that God has set before us, um, such as with motherhood. If we understand that this idea of economics, which is somewhat sterile to people and distant and and even painful, as I mentioned in the abortion episode, since, since right now it seems to be the source of our pain, But if we understand that economics is our interacting with each other, our exchanging with one another in order to better our own lives and better others, then we can start to see how our vocation actually impacts the world. Everything, like I said, from your job, I mean, Martin Luther was famous for saying that the way to be a Christian shoemaker is to make good shoes, be an an honest business person. Being a mother, just I want to say this for your listeners, being a mother is the most powerful position in the world. It is more powerful than the president of the United States. I believe that. (laughs) And that's because we are mothers are raising the, the next generation. And so, you know, even when you are elbow deep in diapers, you are doing something to the glory of God and serving your neighbor, in this case, you know, your own children. Those things that we do to serve our families, to serve our neighbors, to serve Christ, those have real impact in society. And we don't need to think about how are we going to change the government? We just need to elect new people. No, we need to focus on what Christ did for us and then serve others in that same vein. And that's a very practical way to start solving problems. God created us to be creative and to solve problems. And we don't have to turn to government. I mean, I suppose that's one way you can change government is to stop turning to them to solve our problems. But we don't need to. We have each other. And that's the point. Yeah. Something that comes to my mind as you were saying that is uh, we look at what's going on around us and we think to ourselves, I want to change the world. Well, that's not your job. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Our job is to look to Christ, calm down, trust in him, do what Carrie just said. 
our vocation God has given us, glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And that includes loving our neighbor, which includes our family, those closest to us, and our neighbors who are around us, are, are the people that we're with in community and our church. The more and more of us that will get that idea, the more and more impact we will actually have on society rather than thinking that we need to somehow change the culture. That's not our job. We trust Christ. We trust God. We trust the sovereignty. We trust that he has a plan for us. And if we don't see the results that we want to see, that's okay because he's in control. And those of us with a Reformed understanding of confessional, redemptive, historic theology, we understand that. We just trust him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you may be dealing with the brokenness of what this ideology of Christian nationalism has brought you. You may be thinking to yourself, oh, I've been thinking we need to do something. We need to change the government. We got to vote in the right person. It's got to be Trump or it's got to be DeSantis or it's got to be somebody else. There's got to be somebody that's going to be our savior. There is no president on earth or king or emperor, or anyone that is going to save you. Can you hear that right now? None of these people are going to save you. They're not going to save you from problems. They're not going to save you from difficulties. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to look to Christ. You have to trust in Christ. You have to understand that Christ is your only hope. We've established very well here. That doesn't mean that we cannot be involved politically. We can't be involved ideologically uh, with these things and have these discussions and even influence in certain ways. Nobody's saying that's not that that's off limits. No, not at all. Uh, that's a part of loving our neighbor is influencing people with the truths of the Word of God. That's okay. Where it becomes a problem is when we begin to try to coercively, authoritarianly impose these things upon people, okay? I have a friend. I went to Bible college with this friend. I love this guy with all of my heart. As far as I'm concerned, he's a brother in Christ, and God willing, God is going to continue to work in his heart. I love this guy with all my heart, okay? I sang at his wedding when he got married. This is 20 years ago. Eventually, his wife left him for another woman. And then not very long ago, he told me that he was gay. That broke my heart. It's hard to deal with that in a real world context. But my way of dealing with that is not that, oh, we need to make a law. We need to somehow put Christian nationalism at the forefront so we can deal with all these gay people and all this all this stuff going on in our culture. No. The way I dealt with it was that I said, you know what, bro? I don't understand completely. I love you. I'm going to pray for you and I'm here for you. And I don't reject you as my friend or my brother. And he understood. And I think the more and more that we deal with people in that way, and that's not, that's not condoning sin. Okay. My, my friend understands I do not condone what he's doing or his way of life. But at the same time, I still treat him as an image bearer of God. And I love him. And he's, he's a friend and a brother. You know, people are much more receptive to that kind of behavior than they are to 
standing outside with a sign saying you're going to hell or making a law that says this is illegal or whatever. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to understand there are people that are broken in our world. We live in a society of brokenness because of sin, and we have to trust Christ with our brokenness. Carrie and Gregory, thank you so much for joining the Broken Vessels podcast. If you guys would like to share your Twitter handles or uh, share your podcast or your websites, please go ahead and do that now so that people can be pointed to where they can find your content. I think you can find everything at reformedlibertarians.com. I'm fairly certain somewhere on that page, there's a link to our Twitter if you want to follow us there. That's at Refo Liberty and our YouTube page if you prefer to listen to the podcast through uh, YouTube videos. There's actually no video, of course, but you can listen to it that way. Sure. And our email address, of course, we have a contact form there, contact at reformedlibertarians.com, and that should have everything. So if there's something you're looking for on some social media and you can't find it, let us know, and we'll see if we can get it to you that way, or we'll let you know if we have a profile or what have you on some site or other all right sounds great and And carrie go ahead yeah i I also want to add to that we really want to encourage people to write in and ask questions because we know that there's lots of questions that that surround this and so please feel free even if you you disagree with us or you know there's something that just doesn't make sense please feel free to email us we do want to interact with you and so so please do that in addition to that, I've got my own website, mereliberty.com, where I do work that's a little bit adjacent to Reformed Libertarians, which is much more political and theological. And so you'll find a lot of my work that I've done on abortion, on women's rights, on, uh, in fact, one of the things that I was thinking of, Josh, as you were speaking, that there's There's a documentary called The Wisdom of Trauma that came out recently, which has Mm. been very helpful for people who have experienced abuse. I wrote a uh, Christian review of that documentary that's also found on my website. So you can find uh, a number of things there at mereliberty.com. And it's pretty easy to find me on social media. Usually my handle is some variation of at mereliberty. So yeah, feel free to to follow me and please feel free to reach out. We really enjoy the interaction and we want to help people understand a new perspective. Great. Well, thank you so much for both uh, being a part of the Broken Vessels podcast and brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for joining us for the Broken Vessels podcast and we'll see you next week. Thank you.